This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Access restricted. Access denied. Uh, It's a phrase we're familiar with and um, a limitation that we live with quite often. Uh, I suppose that there are a handful of you that work in places, uh, facilities, buildings that I would not be able to get into uh, because I don't have the necessary privileges to enter. Uh, You can't just drive down to the airport and uh, expect to pass through security without having a Ticket for a flight. Access is restricted. Restriction of access is also a problem or challenge in the scriptures, God's word to us. In fact, restriction of access is one of the main topics that the Bible takes up. And it takes it up in the concept of atonement. You could say that atonement is actually the story of the entire Bible. Atonement is the story of the entire Bible. It's the main tension in the Bible's overarching storyline that waits to be resolved. Atonement, or at-one-ment, is the God-initiated, god superintended, God-executed plan to remedy the problem created in Genesis 3. Take a look at this list. Those of you who have been around a while have seen this before. What do they all have in common? They were, are, and or will be the dwelling place of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, a colossal problem was created. Adam and Eve were banished from Eden, which was the perfect dwelling place of God. Now, if we're reading the Bible as a single story, the burning question on every reader's mind at that point is, how do they get back in? How do they get back in? How can Adam and Eve re-enter the dwelling place of God? Paradise. Having access to life and flourishing and perfection. How do they get back in? That's the question the rest of the Bible wrestles with. How can human beings once again enter the life-giving, perfection-creating presence of God? Now, if you are a genuine believer in Christ, you have entered into Christ. In fact, if you're a genuine believer in Christ, Jesus has come to live inside you. So Christians have both entered the dwelling place of God already and also have become the dwelling place of God already. How? Atonement. 
That's our topic today as we continue our training in theological boot camp. Now, by far, the book of the Bible that discusses atonement more than any other, it's not even close. It's not even close. By far, the book of the Bible that discusses this more than any other is the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. So that's what that book is there for. (laughs) After Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there is only one other place where a human being penetrates deeply into the presence of God, and that is on the Day of Atonement, the details of which are recorded in Leviticus 16. Got your Bibles, open them up. Get them open. We want our noses in the book. Let's get our noses in the book. Leviticus 16. Now, I don't have time to show you this now. I I wish I could. Maybe another time. Leviticus is the epicenter of the entire Pentateuch. Penta five Tuch scroll, five scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the literary center. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, is the literary center of the entire Pentateuch. The Day of Atonement was at the heart of Israel's calendar and life. It is through atonement that God made a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Now, before we dive into this, and we're going to work through this methodically, but before we dive into this, I need to show you a video. It's a video that that details the tabernacle, which you have to have a mental picture of if you're going to understand Leviticus 16, okay? Let's take a look at this video and uh, take some mental pictures as we watch it.
don't think it has spotlight. But everything else is pretty close. It's pretty close. Leviticus 16, let's dive in. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, we looked at this story several weeks ago. Nadab and Abihu attempted to penetrate the presence of the Lord in the most holy place, contrary to the command of God, and God struck them down. That scene and these instructions in Leviticus 16 occur on the same day. Entering the presence of the Lord is not a matter of human willpower. It's not a matter of come any way you like. God is going to spell out details for how this is to be done. Now, as we go through this, remember the continuity of the dwelling place of God. Today, the dwelling place of God is Christ, the church. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. One does not enter the dwelling place of God any way one wishes, God has spelled the details for how this is to be done. And how it's done today, listen, how it's done today is anticipated, foreshadowed in the text that we're looking at. It has everything to do with how we enter the dwelling place of God today. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Aaron's the high priest. He's not free to enter the most holy place whenever he'd like. In other words, you cannot have access to the life-giving presence of God without following the precise methods for doing so. Access to the presence of God doesn't come naturally. One isn't born within the presence of God. One is born outside it. Access to the presence of God is determined unilaterally by God. Verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So God gives the first set of details on how to access his presence. There's a bull for a sin offering, ram for a burnt offering. For what purpose? We'll see shortly. Verse 4, Aaron shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So Aaron has some work to do, right? He's got to bathe his entire body. This was the only time that God told Aaron, the high priest, to bathe his entire body before a sacrifice is made. Now keep in mind, many sacrifices were made during the course of the year, but it is only on the Day of Atonement that Aaron is required to bathe this thoroughly. And then he's got some specific attire to put on, undergarments, outer coat, turban. He's holy. He's clean. He's pristine, Now, what does that have to do with this particular day? Why does he have to go to these lengths this particular day? Because this is the only time of the year he enters the most holy place. Verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So, verse 5, we've got three more animals added to the mix Two male goats and another ram. For those of you keeping track at home, we're up to a bull, a ram, two male goats, and an additional ram. We've got five animals in play. Okay? Five animals in play. 
What are we doing with them? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Okay? We've got the first animal checked off the list. It's a bull. Sin offering. What's a sin offering? Those details are spelled out in Leviticus 4 and 5. Just to get a flavor of this, uh, let me read uh, Leviticus 4, 1 to 7. Just listen. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull shall, he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Aaron was to offer this sin offering, this bull for himself and his household, his family, And the sacrifice makes atonement. We'll get into the details of that in a little bit. For now, just notice the connection among three things. Atonement, sacrifice, and sin. Atonement, sacrifice, sin. They're all related. Verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And we'll come to Azazel momentarily. These these verses, though, allow us to check off the list what's happening with the two goats. Aaron casts lots to determine which one is sacrificed for the sin offering and which one becomes the scapegoat. Okay, released into the wilderness. So we've got three animals accounted for. We've got the bull, sin offering for Aaron and his household. We've got one of the goats, sin offering for what we'll see, and then a scapegoat. Verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Feels like deja vu all over again. Yes, it's a repeat of verse 6. Verse 12, He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire in the the censer before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So in addition, Aaron, in addition to blood, takes a container of coals, two handfuls of incense, into the most holy place. And he does this to, in order to create a cloud to cover the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the cover over the Ark of the Covenant. So why is he doing this? So he doesn't die. What's interesting about this is that even though Aaron is entering the presence of God, God's presence is still veiled. This is why he's supposed to create a cloud. 
He's supposed to create this cloud of burning incense to, to kind of cover things because the mercy seat is where, that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant, is where uh, God manifested his presence. The cloud is obscuring the presence of God so Aaron doesn't die. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on, on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. Not the west, not the south, east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So we get some more details about, about the bull, which he sacrificed to make atonement for himself, for his household. He's to take the bull's blood with a single finger, sprinkle some of the blood on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. Why the east side? When God drove out Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, from the Garden of Eden, when he drove them out, they exited the east side. God placed on that east side cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. The east side is the entrance to the dwelling place of God. The blood has to go there first. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So the process that Aaron goes through with, with the bull's blood to make atonement for himself and his household, he does again with one of the goats to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people and to deal with the people's sins. So we've now made atonement for Aaron and his household, the stuff, and the people of Israel. Okay, the bull, the goat. Verse 17, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Aaron is on his own. It's a lonely job. It's a lonely job. An intimidating job. Verse 18, then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. This is likely the altar of burnt offering, the altar of sacrifice in the, the outer courtyard, not the incense altar. And notice that it's not just people who are being atoned for or the sins of people that are being atoned for. It's the tabernacle itself, the furnishings. The sins of the people have tainted the tabernacle itself. Verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. All right, so we got the live goat now. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now we know what's going on with this goat. So we had two, right? Neither of them are so lucky in the end. Uh, one is a sacrifice, sin offering for the people of Israel, the tabernacle and the furnishings. The other is the scapegoat. Aaron lays his hands 
on the head of the goat, figuratively transferring the sins of Israel onto it, and then it's led out into the wilderness, taking away the sins of the people. Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place. He shall leave them there and he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Animals four and five can now be checked off the list, the two rams. Our burnt offerings in the outer courtyard at the altar of sacrifice, okay, making more atonement. Lots of sacrifice, lots of blood, lots of atonement. Verse 25, and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. There's some debate about the precise meaning of Azazel. It's a compound word uh, combining goat and going away. Some thought it was a specific place. Some thought it was just a a place wherever they happened to be. Because remember the tabernacle, they were a nomadic tribe. They were moving around. The tabernacle was moving around. The goat is sent away, taking the sin of God's people away. Verse 29, it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So these procedures were to be done this particular day. Tenth day, seventh month, every year, afflict yourselves. It carries with the idea, not not abusing yourself, but self-denial. In other places in the Old Testament, it's linked with fasting and prayer. Verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Atonement is made to cleanse them from their sins. Verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Now rest in the Bible is not a nap. It's deeper than that. It was the goal of creation. When everything was as it should be, God's pronouncement during creation that that everything was exceedingly good is saying that everything was in a state of rest. Everything was as it should be. The day of atonement was a Sabbath day of rest. Atonement brought rest. It brought existential settledness where the people could step back and say, yes, Now things are the way they should be. Why? Because the favor of God once again rested on them. Now the chapter concludes with a summary in verses 32 to 34. 32 to 34 basically sums up the entire chapter. And the priest who was anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement 
for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Thirteen times in this chapter alone, atonement is mentioned. Keep in mind, this is the only day of the year where a human being could enter the most holy place where God manifests his presence on earth. Now, the reason I believe that Leviticus 16 is the center of the entire Pentateuch is that it is resolving the problem created in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve and all humanity banished from the life-giving presence of God. Keep in mind, when you hear the presence of God, you've got to think life. Anything outside the presence of God dies. If you're going to live and flourish in vitality, you must be in the presence of God. Leviticus 16 is pecking at the solution to the problem created in Genesis 3. So if in the Bible storyline the problem is regaining access to God's presence, somehow atonement is an absolute necessity if that's going to be realized. But here's the question. How does this work out in light of Christ? How does it work out in light of Christ? I'm not Aaron. We're not Israel. We're not running bulls and goats through with the sword. How does this work out in light of Christ? We're going to look at three things. We're looking at access to God. Access to God. And we're going to look at what inhibits access, the means of access, and the outcome of access. What inhibits access, the means of access, and the outcome of access. First, what inhibits access? Nobody is born a Christian. If someone was to ask you how long you've been a Christian, you tell them you've been a Christian for as long as you've been alive. You're not understanding the story of atonement. You're not understanding the story of the Bible. We are born into this world banished from the presence of God. We are born banished. The Apostle Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. We are not born children of God. The understatement of the year has to be access to God's presence is restricted. That's the understatement of the year. Access to God's presence is restricted. When I think about all Aaron had to do on this particular day, in order to be able to enter the most holy place without dying, it's exhausting. Can you imagine having that checklist? Let's see. Bull without blemish. Did we look that one over? That's right, there's nobody here but me. God gave meticulously detailed instructions that he had to follow with precision in order to access the presence of God and live to tell about it. And this is only Aaron, nobody else. And only on the Day of Atonement, no other day. Access to God's presence and by extension, access to eternal life is restricted. Why? Did you catch the answer? Sin. 
Did you notice the blood for the two sin offerings were daubed inside the most holy place? The burnt offerings were out in the courtyard. But the blood for the sin offerings had to go inside the most holy place. What inhibits access to the life-giving presence, perfection, creating presence of God today is still the same. It's sin. The Apostle Paul put it this way, a verse you all know well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think Paul's drawing on Leviticus 16 in this verse. Because God manifested his glory in the tent of meeting, the most holy place. The glory of God would descend and hover over the mercy seat, the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. Sin causes us literally to lack, to fall short of the glory of God. Our natural condition is on the outside looking in with no hope of entrance. This is why I love that we sing this worship song, Living Hope, the very first lyrics we sing is this, how great the chasm that lay between us. How great the chasm that lay between us. We are born on the outside looking in. What inhibits access to the presence of God is sin. Second, the means of access. Leviticus 16 contains four details that spout the means of access to God's presence, listen, that still hold today still holds today. Four details in Leviticus 16 that tell us about the means of access to the life-giving presence of God that still hold today. First, it's God-initiated. It's God-initiated. Who's speaking in Leviticus 16? This crazy chapter that's got all this stuff going on. Whose idea was this? This is God speaking. This is your creator speaking. He's come up with the plan. He's come up with the instructions. Moses and Aaron didn't escape to a downtown think tank to creatively come up with a way to regain what Adam and Eve lost. God doesn't turn to Moses and Aaron and say, okay, huddle up, guys, and we got to figure this out together. No. This is God unilaterally saying, this is how you get into my presence. If at the end of Leviticus 15, God chooses not to speak anymore, Does Aaron gain access to the presence of God? No. It is God and God alone who initiates and then prescribes the exact method of gaining access to his presence. We cannot strong arm God into admitting us into his presence. We can't negotiate our way in. We cannot offer him a deal he can't refuse. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing. The only way entering the dwelling place of God becomes even a remote possibility is if God initiates a way in. There is nothing that obligates him to do so. If God doesn't speak, there's no access to him. There's no hope and there's no life. So I'm trying to put myself in Moses' place Aaron's place, people of Israel, as they listen to the very first time God speaking the words of Leviticus 16. And when God finishes speaking in my 21st century mind, I'm thinking to myself, 
So you're saying there's a chance. You're saying there's a way. God, thank you for speaking Leviticus 16. Thank you for these words. If you had remained silent, where would we be? Your personal access to the presence of God, the dwelling place of God, heaven, eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, is God-initiated. It's not your idea. It's not your plan. It's not your skill. It's not your willpower. It's not your intelligence. The blessing of entering the presence of God is God-initiated. That's enough to get me to drop to my knees. Means of access is God initiated second through a substitutionary sacrifice. Did you notice before Aaron could enter the most holy place, he had to sacrifice the bull and goat first? The sacrifice happens first, then entrance into the dwelling place of God. If if Aaron had entered the dwelling place of God without first offering the bull and goat as a sacrifice, what did God say would happen to him? He would die just like his sons. No sacrifice, no flourishing in the presence of God. No sacrifice, no access to life. No sacrifice, no party in heaven. This anticipates what transpired in the cross of Christ. If you want to turn here with me, you can. It's Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 and 10 is a rehearsal of Leviticus 16 in light of Christ. Hebrews 9 and 10 is a rehashing of Leviticus 16 in light of Christ. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna in Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot not speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second Only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So in these verses, he's just saying, here's how they did it in the past, Christians. Here's how we did it in the past. It's Leviticus 16, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for, our, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He entered the most holy place, spotless, holy, pure, but instead of bringing the blood of of a bull and a goat, he brought his own blood. Just like we saw last week, Jesus is both the high priest, the true and better Aaron, and the sacrifice, the true and better sacrifice. Skip over to chapter 10 in Hebrews, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, that allows entrance into the dwelling place of God, the most holy place. The gospel writers record that when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two, signifying, come in. I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, and um, that's when Christian rock was in its heyday. Some of you remember this. One of my favorite bands was the group Petra. Remember Petra? Back in the day, uh, Bob Hartman was uh, an electric guitarist in the band and one of the lead songwriters uh, for them. He wrote, as I read back some of the lyrics, he wrote, wrote some remarkably deep lyrics. Uh, there's one song that Petra performed called Enter In. Enter In. It's all about this. It's about Leviticus. It's about Hebrews 9 and 10. The lyrics go like this. Once a year for sacrifice, just one priest could pay the price And step inside the inner veil to make the people free. The temple stood the same for years till the Nazarene appears. Things will never be the same since 33 AD. When he spoke and bowed his head, he who saved the world was dead. Then the earth began to shake. Heaven's walls began to break. Opening the holy place, the temple veil is torn in two. The way is clear for me and you. We can enter in, enter in, into heaven's holy place. We can enter in, enter in boldly by his blood. We can approach his throne of grace. We can enter in a new and living way. By our faith, he will receive us when we pray. We can enter in. Now, without a second look, we forget what all it took to be seen as innocent by his holy eyes. Never thinking foolishly, there is something he won't see. For our lack of righteousness, there is no disguise. He won't look the other way. Someone's life will have to pay. Once for all, it has been done, taken out upon his son. He remembers it no more. Now for us, he is the door opened up forevermore. We can enter in. We gain access to the presence of God through his initiative. We gain access through a substitutionary sacrifice. We gain access through a substitutionary sacrifice involving blood, thirdly. God initiated substitutionary sacrifice involving blood. You saw the leading role blood plays in this. 
When you think about the course of Israel's history, the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of sacrifices made, the gallons and gallons and gallons of blood poured out. Why so much blood? The word occurs 362 times in the Old Testament, so it's not exactly rare. On 103 occasions, it refers to the blood of sacrifices specifically. Why so much blood? Far and away, the most frequent use of the term blood is to indicate death with violence. That's used 203 times in the Old Testament. Why is that so important? I'll get to that in just seconds. The blood didn't just mean a violent death. It's part of what it signifies, a violent death. It means more than that. Leviticus 17, which is actually part of the literary unit of Leviticus 16, we read this, for the life of a creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In other words, it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. This is why, by the way, the Israelites were not to eat meat with blood still in it. They had to drain it first. These passages, these ideas tell that the Israelites saw life and blood as closely connected and they treated the blood with great respect. The pouring out of the blood of an animal indicated that a life had been given up in death. So why do the scriptures tie together blood with violent death? The short answer is God's wrath. The total number of references to God's wrath exceeds 580 times. So it cannot be said that this is an occasional topic. The people of Israel were in no doubt. They knew the one thing that would arouse God's anger is sin. They knew that God was always angry with sin. The reason there are so many references to divine wrath in the scriptures is that Israel had firsthand experience of that topic. God was angry with sin generally, with specific sins. The shedding of blood, adultery, afflicting the widow or the orphan, violence, covetousness, falsehood. Most of all, God's wrath is aroused by idolatry. And that comes out frequently. Let me give you just one example. Ezekiel chapter 7, God is speaking. He says, I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will repay you in accordance with your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes the blow. Now, to say the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath, while Jesus of the New Testament is a God of love, is, of course, an oversimplification that overlooks details. Jesus, by example, speaks of hell more than any other character in the New Testament. God's wrath rises to the surface in passages like John 3, Romans 1, Ephesians 5, Revelation 6, 11, 14, and 16. God's wrath is built into the atonement itself. Look at this verse, Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In the original, propitiation means to make one favorable by averting wrath. To make one favorable by averting wrath. Jesus' death turns God's wrath on us to favorability. The Bible is insistent that the wrath of God is the grim reality that every sinner has to deal with. 
God is not neutral in the face of evil as God defines evil, not how we define evil, as he defines evil. He's not neutral in the face of it. He's strongly and personally active in opposition to it. So part of what Christ did on the cross was propitiation. He has made the offering that turns away wrath, and as we put our trust in him, we need fear it no more. This means a wonderful assurance of peace for the Christian. In the end, we have nothing to fear. For Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We sing a song, I think we're closing with it today, Man of Sorrows, which includes the lyric, The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. So the means of access to the presence of God is God initiated through a substitution sacrifice involving blood, lastly removing sin and avoiding judgment. We've got to deal with the scapegoat. The scapegoat. What's going on with the scapegoat? We should view the two goats, by the way, as working in tandem, in pairs. One was a sin offering. The other is a scapegoat. Aaron figuratively transfers the sins of the people onto the goat. Then it's led into the wilderness and it's left out there. I wonder... Think about being an Israelite in the camp, okay? I wonder if any Israelite gave a second thought to that goat. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. They're not just thinking about the animals that were run through with the sword. They're thinking about this, this poor goat that is led out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere and it's just left there. Israel at this time is far removed from civilization, There's nothing out there. And my sins have been transferred to that goat. What's that showing me? Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. My sins have been removed not just put next to me, but they're way out there. There's something else, though, that the scapegoat visualizes. The scapegoat, because the scapegoat's got all the sins of the people on him, is no longer worthy to be included in the community of God's now forgiven people. It symbolizes expulsion. And if the tabernacle in general is the dwelling place of God, it shows judgment in the ultimate sense of the term. If God's wrath is not averted, if we are not made favorable to him through substitutionary sacrifice, wherein our sins are justly addressed, we are expelled from the dwelling place of God, the community of God's people. So there's a future warning for God's people in the picture of the scapegoat. The means of access to God is God-initiated, through a substitution sacrifice involving blood, removing sin, avoiding judgment, last, the outcome of access. Day of Atonement was to be a Sabbath of solemn rest. Verse 31. Rest is a significant theme in the scriptures. In the immediate historical context, Sabbath rest meant the people of Israel were to abstain from working and rely on God's provision 
That's what it meant to observe the Sabbath. So think with me. How much is the common Israelite doing on the Day of Atonement? How much is the common Israelite doing on the Day of Atonement? Nothing. (laughs) We're not doing anything. Aaron's doing all the work. If we are all there, picture us all there, none of us are Aaron, what are we doing? Well, we have this mention of afflicting ourselves, which is bound up with prayer and fasting. But other than that, we are passive bystanders relying on the work of the high priest to deal with our greatest problem. We are gathered around our tents with family and friends watching, waiting, while the high priest's God-prescribed work averts his wrath and makes him favorable to us. We are gathering around our tents with family and friends watching, waiting, while the high priest God-prescribed work casts our sins far away from us. All of this is being done for us. And what have we contributed to it? Nothing. It's no wonder why Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So when word reaches us, we're in Israel's camp, when word reaches us that Aaron's work is complete and he has survived, what is your response? I can imagine that that day would provide a kaleidoscope of responses. Relief. Aaron got it right. (laughs) We're still alive. Aaron's still alive. Solemnity. There's been a lot of death, a lot of death, a lot of blood to bring about this cleansing, forgiveness. Joy, not only are we still alive, but God's wrath has been averted and we have been made favorable to him. Renewed devotion, what we get in spite of what we deserve makes me want to live for the glory of this God. Leviticus 16 prefigures, anticipates, foreshadows the cross of Christ. Does the cross of Christ create this kind of response in you? Relief, solemnity, joy, renewed devotion. Underneath it all, the biblical writers are zealous for us to experience rest. The Day of Atonement is a Sabbath of solemn rest. As our great high priest and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, Jesus has done the work to purify and forgive, to turn God's wrath into favor. And when that truth sinks in, when when the Holy Spirit makes it real to you, you experience rest. You know what rest is? Rest is the REM of the soul. Rapid eye movement. Scientists will tell you the thing that restores the body is not the length of sleep, but the depth of sleep. REM is what restores the body. I realize this world can be a challenging place to live in, particularly at the current moment. It's not easy. But let me try to connect the rest of the Day of Atonement and the cross work of Christ 
to our experience today. Psalm 3 is remarkable. David is talking, and he begins this psalm by saying this, O Lord, how many are my foes? You have foes? You've got foes out there? How many rise up against me? You ever feel like that? But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Now listen to what he says next. Therefore, I lie down and I sleep. And I awake for you, sustain me. There's no sleepless night for David. I will not fear, though tens of thousands would encamp against me. Picture that. He's got tens of thousands of adversaries with arrows pointed at him. Just out there. Just out there. If there's any cause for a restless night's sleep, that's it. But what does he say? I lie down and sleep. Remarkable words. This is a man who goes to bed knowing full well he is greatly outnumbered, and when he gets up the next morning, the arrows will be pointed at him. But yet he sleeps. He rests. A lot of us have trouble sleeping because of the thousands of foes out there. But David sleeps. Question. When your foes outnumber you, when the arrows are pointed at you, do you know how to lie down and sleep? Can you sleep? This is the true test of the validity of your faith. A lot of people say, I believe in God. I believe in this. I believe in that. But when the foes rise up and the arrows start flying, is your faith working? Is it working? Can you sleep? Can you rest? In the midst of the foes and arrows, do you have REM of the soul? Do you see? What Jesus has done is our great high priest, the true and better Aaron, and the sacrifice to end all sacrifices is the means of finding rest in the midst of foes and arrows. Let's pray. Gracious God, we were powerless, helpless, hopeless to cross the chasm that separated us from you and your paradise. In your love, you initiated a way for our sins to be justly paid. Jesus, our substitute, condemned in our place, has died. It's his blood that purifies. It's his blood that bears in our place your wrath so that we may experience your favor. Though our foes may be many and the arrows too numerous to count, I pray we would rest in the finished work of Christ 
and relish the REM of the soul that he has provided. Oh Lord, give us REM of the soul. We worship you now for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.